Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm not talking about pedophiles. That's not what I'm talking about. Or serial murderers, you know. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kind of everyday outbursts or, you know, experiences of a part of us that we feel we can't tame, we can't control. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome to the show the shadow expert, Dr. Connie Zweig. Connie is a retired therapist, writer, climate reality leader, and citizen's climate lobbyist. She's the co-author of Meeting the Shadow, Romancing the Shadow, and Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality. Her latest book is called The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, which has won both the 2021 American Book Fest Award and the 2021 Best Indie Book Award for Best Inspirational Nonfiction. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Connie Zawig about embracing the shadow. We often associate the shadow with negativity, but it's not necessarily bad or sinister. The shadow is actually just composed of repressed feelings and messages in our unconscious, which can erupt out of control. According to Dr. Zweig, we must develop a conscious relationship with our shadow by doing inner work, especially as we age. As we near the end of our lives, it's crucial that we conduct a life review to help us repair emotionally and spiritually. It was a real honor chatting with Dr. Connie Zweig because I have long been fascinating with notions of the shadow and I've been a big fan of shadow work and what it can really do to help people bring to the surface things that they really have not accepted about themselves. As Carl Rogers says, it's only when you accept yourself, then you can change. I also resonate with her work a lot because I'm really into the notion of the daimonic. It's not the demonic, but the daimonic, which is a notion that Roel May talked about a lot. You know, the daimonic is whatever is within us that has the power to overtake the whole person. It can be used for destructive purposes or creative purposes. Dr. Zweig has really influenced me a lot in many ways, and I found this chat just so inspiring and informative, and I know you will too. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Connie Zweig. Hi, Connie. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I've been a big fan of a lot of your work, and uh, your book, The Hidden Power of the Dark Side of Human Nature, has been a perennial resource for me in, in my work and my attempts to revive humanistic psychology. Oh, beautiful. Can we start off with you telling uh, our audience a little bit more about how you got into uh, shadow work and you know, why that interested you in the first place? I began meditation when I was 19, and I really went for spirituality. That was what my life was about in my 20s. And there was an experience that I had with my meditation community that was very heartbreaking and disillusioning, the hypocrisy that I encountered. And it kind of pierced the veil of the all good, all light, all positivity paradigm. And I had been, I started, I started to read Jung um, because it was hard to find psychology that included spirituality, but I was kind of already psychologically oriented because my parents brought me up going to therapy. 
So I started reading Jung, and then I went into Jungian analysis, and my first analyst really initiated me into the shadow in my dreams. Mm. And that kind of stimulated my motivation to go back to graduate school and get my doctorate in deaf psychology. So, you know, there was a whole sort of series of steps. At that time, I was working in the publishing industry. There was Meeting the Shadow, as you know, is a collection. And there was a whole series of those anthologies that I launched at the publishing house. Yeah. And so then it kind of struck a chord and it sold so well that I realized people wanted to know about the shadow. So um, after receiving my PhD, a couple decades later, I wrote Romancing the Shadow with a colleague, which is more about the method of shadow work that we developed to extend Jung's work, which really focused on meeting the shadow in dreams and in active imagination or create creative fantasy work. So we really cultivated this way of identifying when the shadow erupts and then um, building a conscious relationship with it. And so romancing the shadow then is focused more on um, sort of everyday life and 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 how to have that connection to your unconscious, primarily in relationships. Like, you know, you keep on having the same fight over and over again, or you keep on choosing the same partner over and over again. That was in my 40s. And uh, then I wrote Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, which will be um, revised and republished next spring. And then I wrote a novel about Rumi, And then, you know, I was in my late 60s thinking about retirement from clinical work and starting to feel disoriented, like most Mm. people do, you know. Who am I if I'm not Dr. Connie, the shadow expert? Yeah. And it kind of really sent me into this whole world of conscious aging and the discovery that there were absolutely no books about the unconscious and the Mm. aging process. There are wow. a couple of them now, but at that time there was there's there was nothing for people like me. So I said to my husband, "Oh my God, I have to write another book." <laughs> <laughs> it's in you, yeah, it's in you, yeah. And so that's how that happened, yeah. The inner work of age, shifting from role to soul, is the title of the book for our listeners. Before we do a deep dive into that book, this is such a great opportunity for you to introduce to many of our listeners, the just what is depth psychology? What is the shadow? What do we mean by these terms? You know, in the early days of psychology, a little more than a 100 years ago, Freud kind of took the first moon trip into the unconscious. And Jung explored the unconscious as his, and Freud kind of mentored Jung, Carl Jung. And Jung kind of eventually broke away from Freud, and one of the differences between them was how they viewed the unconscious. And Jung said it wasn't only about our negative emotions and dark impulses, it was, it was about anything at all that was repressed. So our creativity could be repressed in the shadow. Our dreams and aspirations could be repressed into the yes. personal unconscious. The shadow is was Jung's name for the personal unconscious. There are layers of the unconscious, so we're not talking about the collective unconscious. We're talking about just the personal unconscious in each individual. And so depth psychology refers to the field of psychology that emphasizes and includes unconscious process. And most of psychology no longer does. You know, most of psychology is now, they call it evidence-based. It's now based on brain and neuroscience cognitive behavioral stuff. It's like another field. It's just very different from deaf psychology. Yeah. Very different. Very different. Yeah. Can we elaborate the connection between the phrase that you hear a lot, the dark side and, and the shadow? Because if I'm correct, if I understand this correctly, the shadow is not necessarily the dark side of human nature, right? It, it's a much broader collection of unconscious processes according to Jung, right? And also you can have conscious dark side that isn't the shadow, right? You can have your dark side expressed that isn't part of your shadow, right? Are are these things true? Well, 
it's a little slippery. We have associations with the word dark, which also carries certain racist tones. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've had African-American people say that to me. The terminology for dark side came up because it's not in the light of awareness. Mm -hmm. Not that it's mm -hmm. dark negative, right. but that it's, a, that it's a blind spot. Love it doesn't it. live in the light of awareness or consciousness. It's unconscious. So it's dark in relation to awareness, not dark in relation to negativity. Now, some, some content, some shadow content is dark in relation to the, or negative in relation to the ego. So when you're growing up, if your father says to you, don't be sad, that's wussy and weak. I don't want to ever see you cry. Then that whole set of feelings gets repressed into your personal unconscious or your shadow. And as you live through life and all those feelings of sorrow, grief, vulnerability um, are, are forbidden to you, are not allowed to be lived out, then we could say that they're dark or negative in relation to your ego. Because mm. your ego is telling you not to be sad, right? Mm. They're not dark or negative in relation to somebody who grows up differently and is allowed to express sadness. And that's part of what happens when people find a partner and mate, is that their shadow mm. material doesn't match. It's not compatible. Wow. If you grow up with the message, don't get angry, I can't tolerate it. You know, uh, your mother says, I can't handle that anger. Settle down, you know, be quiet, go to your room. Then all of that anger gets buried in the shadow. And what happens when you meet someone who does something that makes you authentically angry? I mean, it deserves an angry response. Well, it's forbidden to you. And so you go into terrible internal conflict, <laughs> you know, and you go yeah. into conflict with the other person. And sometimes what happens then is the material erupts from the shadow out of your control. So, you know, in my practice, I had a lot of people who were ragers. And they were ragers because they had no conscious relationship to their authentic anger. And so it just came up out of their control, out of the control of their ego. Mm. Does that clarify a bit? Oh, you have no idea how much that clarified. So interesting. We got to bring this stuff back into mainstream psychology. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, I spent my whole dissertation, my whole PhD was on unconscious processes and its relationship to intelligence. But the focus was really on like information processing and implicit learning and of statistical patterns. I mean, that's different than like what you're talking about in the unconscious. So I, I hear you and I I think it's really, really profound stuff. And also just clarifying for our audience that um, what, what the dark side means in this framework is not necessarily negative. Um, it's just a wow. I mean, that's really mind-blowing. Really mind or evil. It's not evil. Or evil. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not talking about pedophiles. That's not what I'm talking about. Or serial murderers, you know. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kind of everyday outbursts or, you know, experiences of a part of us that we feel we can't tame, we can't control. It could show up in addictions. It could show up in mood, in mood disorders. You know, someone is depressed and can't figure it out and can't get over it and doesn't know why. Because there's a lot of material that's repressed that wasn't forbidden, that wasn't allowed self-expression. Is meditation a good vehicle for, for confronting the shadow, bringing it into the light? You know, for as long as I've taught shadow work, I've, con I've taught it in conjunction with meditation. And people always ask me why that is. So for me, in order to be able to really encounter those parts of ourselves that are most scary and difficult and challenging, we need to have a place to center ourselves. Mm. We need to have a way to quiet ourselves, quiet the mind especially, calm the nervous system, and then learn how to watch when the shadow comes up. So if you really learn how to meditate and find 
you know, that refuge inside yourself of silence, then when a very difficult thought comes up or a really difficult feeling comes up, you can go to that center inside yourself and contemplate it and uncover its roots and do shadow work. But if you don't have that, if you're lost inside the noise in your mind, mm. it's much harder to do. Yeah. And that's where most people live. Most people live inside the noise. Wow. Okay. So we can zoom into uh, your latest work and its connection to some of the ideas we're talking about. So what is the phrase inner ageist? Uh, like, what does that mean? And how does that affect our health? The way that I teach shadow work is, you know, there's all this shadow content we were just talking about, all the material that's been buried. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's amorphous. And so it's hard to get a grasp of it. So what I do is I help people or teach people in the books how to personify a shadow character, how to identify repeating internal dialogue, repeating feelings and repeating sensations, and then turn that into a shadow character, a figure in your unconscious that you can begin to make a conscious relationship with. Let's say it's the foodie or the abandoned child or the angry boy, whatever it is, right? Now you've got something you can work with. So in my latest work, I discovered first in myself and then in my research that we live in a kind of a sea of ageism in our culture. You know, youth is good and old is bad. Independent is good and dependent is bad. Um, strong is good, weak is bad. You're talking about American culture? Yes, in Western, mm. post-industrial, yeah. white, mm. European yeah. culture. In that sea of ageism, which we see in the movies, we hear in our families. I mean, my father used to make comments even with relatives and with TV shows and everything. We internalize that ageist message that young is good and old is bad. Well, what happens as we age through the lifespan? We're still carrying that unconscious message inside of us unknowingly. So then all of a sudden, I'm, I have 73 years of life experience. If I hadn't really worked with that, I'd be going, oh my God, I'm old. I, I don't, you know, all, my wrinkles, my body changes, my this, my that. And what ends up happening is that we then project that ageism against ourselves. Mm. And I had so many people in my practice who were feeling self-hate mm. because their bodies were changing or their energy level was changing, their productivity was going down, their hair was turning gray. Whatever it was, they had such negative feelings about it about their own aging. So I found the research of Becca Levy at Yale University. She spent her whole career studying the impact of internalized ageism on mm. our health. Interesting. And what she, yeah, and what she found is that what I call the inner ageist, this is a shadow character that I call the inner ageist, which is epidemic in our culture, men and women. And what she found is that that unconscious internalized ageism affects our heart rate, affects our memories, affects our moods, our emotional health, affects our cognitive health, even affects our longevity. And when I saw that, it just blew my mind. I wrote a whole chapter about the inner ageist because I realized that even though there's a campaign to end ageism in the culture now, that that social activism is not enough because it's internal. It requires inner work to really uproot the inner ageist shadow character in us so that we can feel self-acceptance and we can find the time to really self-actualize at this stage of life. Well, you're not, you're speaking my language. 
I'm, I'm all about self-actualization. Yeah. Yes. What are some of the the major uh, or some other shadows that you have seen happens to people as they get older that's specific to the aging process? There's a big one that happens with retirement because our culture is all about productivity. It's all about success. What did you do today? Or you go to a party, what do you do? And so we've unconsciously identified with what I call the doer. Some people call call it the perfectionist or the producer or the dominator, the controller or the CEO, whatever it is we call it, our identity is about doing. And what then happens when the roles fall away with retirement? People are having millions of baby boomers are having a terrible time with this, feeling disoriented and lost. Some are sort of taking up encore careers, starting new businesses. Some are turning to creative outlets. Some are turning to political activism. But what I want to suggest is that there's something deeper. And that is that in all the spiritual traditions, we're taught that this stage of life is about spirituality. It's about contemplation. Mm -hmm. It's about turning within. Mm -hmm. And if we continue to maintain the doing level that we, can't, that we had at midlife, I call, you know, the heroic doing on the hero's journey, then we don't really become an elder. We don't make a shift in identity out of the doer into a more contemplative, more spiritual stage of life. And, you know, the subtitle of my book, I borrowed from Ramdas. It's called mm -hmm. Shifting from Role to Soul. That was his term, mm -hmm. and I just love it. Because people instantly identify with, oh my God, that's what I need to do. I need to let go of my identity with my role, whether that's CEO or therapist or teacher or nurse or mom, whatever it is, lawyer, writer. I need to let go of that identity and shift to who I really am, my spiritual nature that's beneath all the roles, behind all the roles. And so that was one of the intentions in my book was to teach people how to do that with practices and really deepen their experience of this stage of life. It doesn't mean that we stop doing. Many people want to, like here I am with you, so many people want to continue to contribute. Mm -hmm. But we're not so identified with that. It's not about how much we do or don't do. It's more about the quality of awareness, the stage, the level of consciousness with which we do what we're doing in that stage of life. You strike me as a, a, a very spiritual person. Do you see yourself that way? Like, you, you, you seem very intuitive to me. Well, you know, I've been practicing meditation for 53 years now. Not too shabby. <laughs> Not too shabby. You know, in the Vedanta lineage, um, I've had, you know, several teachers, and my practice is my favorite time of the day. Mm. And it kind of goes without saying that that's just essential to me. Do you mind telling me some of your major influences in the meditation world? I mean, I, I, some of my major influences are people like Sharon Salzberg, um, Sam Harris. I'm just curious sort of who, uh, who's, who've influenced you. Yeah, I don't, you know, the reason I don't typically do that is because uh -huh. I don't want people to follow me. You know, it's really, mm, there's I a see. chapter in the book, there's a chapter in the book about how to find a spiritual practice that fits you. That works who you. Are that works now. You. Yeah. I love it. Love you it. know, who you are now. So I'm not a Buddhist, but people who are listening may feel resonance with that tradition or with Judaism or with Christianity or with whatever. So there are mystical streams in every tradition that you can find now that have practices, that have teachers and practices. It's, um, I mean, there's just been this democratization of spiritual teachings, and we're kind of blessed to be living 
at that particular time in, with that particular opportunity. So I think it's important for people to find their own way. That's the way of self-actualization. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So is there a difference between being uh, or becoming a senior and becoming an elder? Is there a difference in those concepts for you? You know, we all become seniors with a Medicare birthday. I mean, we kind of get this stamp of approval. Now you get Medicare. It's official. But that mm -hmm. is, yeah, but that is not a statement about inner work or internal development or psychological growth. And we've all met people who are 65 or 75 or 85 who are closed-minded, rigid, regretful. That's not an elder, mm. right? So for yeah. me, elder is a stage, not an age. I like that. It's a stage of development. It's not chronological. I've met people who are elders at 50. So it's not chronological. It's a quality of awareness that results from doing the inner work that I write about. So, for example, completing emotional unfinished business. Mm. Wow. How can you become an elder if you really haven't done that? If you still need to give forgiveness or receive forgiveness if you feel regret about something, if you feel hurt and haven't really tried to heal it, or completing spiritual unfinished business like we were just talking about, or even doing a life review, which is such a beautiful practice. It really reoriented me to this stage of life. So I go into great detail about how to look back over each decade and examine it, what was lived out, and what was unlived in the shadow. So you can discover your unlived life in the shadow, and then you can kind of choose whether there's something there that you want to express now. Mm. And it might be a feeling, it might be an aspiration, it might be a project, you know, it could be all kinds of things. But unless we do this inner work, I think we don't really sit in the seat of the elder. Hmm. You know, this is an this is an archetype. The elder is an archetype that has a kind of nobility to it. And in indigenous cultures, elders are revered. They have a special place. But in our culture, which is, you know, as I said, is so ageist, we never think about honoring elders. We don't and we don't have a rite of passage to become an elder. And that was one of the things that I really kept in mind as I was writing. I wanted the book to be a rite of passage, to become an elder. So you go through the practices in every chapter, and by the end of the book, you're different. You're changed. And I've got about, oh, more than 40 groups of people now who have formed wisdom circles, which, I, which are like book clubs. And they're reading together, and they're doing the practices together in the book, and they're telling me how they're changing. They're telling me about their discovery, so it's very gratifying. It's just been beautiful for me. Have you thought about teaching an online course? I am teaching so much. <laughs> yeah, you do enough already. Tomorrow I have a workshop on Life Review, a two-hour workshop. If anybody's interested in my online stuff, you can go to Connie'sWag.com. The links are all there. I've mm. got several really several individual workshops and several large events coming up. Well, okay. So you just mentioned that you're doing a two-hour thing on life review. What what is the purpose of a life review? Can you talk a little bit more? Can we double click on what that means? The purpose of a life review is to really recall the key events and people and gains and losses, births and deaths, turning points that happened in your life. And then as a result of each one, to examine what didn't happen. So if one thing, like so I mentioned to you that I started spirituality in my 20s. And as a result of that, I didn't make other choices. I didn't build a career early. I didn't have kids early, right? because I was doing that. And so in a life review, you look at this was expressed, and so this was repressed. And you begin wow. to see the relationship between 
your lived life and your unlived life. You just gave me chills. That's, whew. I mean, I'm terrified of like uh, reaching an age where I do a life review and I like regret what I repressed. I mean, I'm scared of that. Let that fear of regret motivate you. Mm. Mm. Let it motivate you to live the life you want to be living now. I'm sure doing this podcast is part of it. It is. It's definitely part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that at the end of your life, you can say, you know, I can let go without regret. And I think in, in my stage of life, it's crucial. I had a friend said to me recently, he's in his 70s, and he said, you know, if I don't write that novel now, I'm going to die with regret. And he's doing it. He's finally waited until his 70s, and he's finally doing it. And so I think, you know, what you just said can be a teacher, can be a motivator. Mm. And people have different dreams and different aspirations and different callings. But if you tune into yourself and you really know what that is, it's important to follow it. And so when you do a life review, it's kind of like um, distilling the wisdom from the life you've lived and what you've learned and what you can contribute now, you know? Like, for example, I really don't think anybody else could have written this book because I have this history of working with the shadow, right? And it led me, and it led me to this moment to write about the shadow and age. But everybody's story has that unique quality. I mean, I've done life review with hundreds of people now. And they all say, oh, my God, now I know what I can, I know the gift that I can give now. What's the age range of people that you've worked with to do life review? What's the youngest that you'll go? (laughs) You know, some people are doing it at midlife, but it's a different experience. Can I do it? Can I do it at 43? You can do it whenever you want, Scott. Yay! It's a a different experience because you'll look at the first half of life and you won't have the shortened time horizon. So for me, uh, you know, death is a teacher. Mm. My mortality is a teacher. And so part of the urgency that I feel is that I don't, I, I might have 10 years, I might have 20 years, I don't know. But that's a lot less than what I've lived. And so you do the life review in the context of awareness of mortality. It's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. I, I, of course. No, I hear you. I'm really fascinated with this, um, this notion in your book of emotional repair. Can you talk a little about uh, what you mean by emotional repair and particularly in later life? For many people, emotional repair can follow a life review because you begin to see where your injuries happened on the timeline, who they happened with, whether they were traumas or betrayals or um, rejections, whatever they were. And then you can begin to see, okay, what can I let go of now? Really deeply release. And what needs repair? So I had one woman say to me that she felt regret about how she treated her mother before her mother died, and she couldn't speak to her now. And so she wrote letters. She wrote a whole series of letters to her mother in order to do that repair, and she kept writing until the regret lifted. So that's an example of emotional repair. Some people can do that with, you know, face-to-face with people who were alive. For me, when my dad was in his 80s, he had stopped drinking, and he was really an alcoholic when I was growing up. He was an angry guy a lot of the time, and it was traumatic for my mother and sister and me. And when he was in his 80s, he was really mellow. And we got to talk about all that. And over a series of conversations and lots of tears, we were able to understand each other more and forgive each other. So, so powerful. you know, 
Yeah. Some people can do this with a therapist or a coach. They don't actually need the other person there. They can do it, you know. And some people can do this through journaling mm. on their own. So there are all different kinds of ways of, of um, you know, there are a lot of psychology books about this because emotional repair is really about, it's really about therapy. Do you, do you see your, your book is right there at the top of my bookshelf? Oh, yeah, I can see the bottom of do you, it. Yeah. Do you see it? Uh, the, yeah. These people, uh, including yourself, are, are, are my inspirations. I mean, Jung, of course, Joseph Campbell, amazing Joseph Campbell's work. I, I mean, why is that not discussed more in, in modern day suffering, you know, in that kind of arc? Uh, the role may. Did you know Nathaniel Brandon at all? Did you ever meet him? I did. Wow, that's legendary. Wow, <laughs> that you two met. I was in publishing, no. you know, when we published that book, when I was in, in mm. the publishing house and we published Nathaniel, yeah. I won't ask you for any juicy gossip, I promise. Um, let's see who else. Uh, Ernest Becker uh, very much influenced me. I'm just thinking of some people, uh, some contributors here that have had a particularly profound influence on me. I wonder how much you've come across the ranks of Abraham Maslow, or has that influenced you at all? Because his work has influenced me a lot. Well, in my early years in um, psychology, before I really moved toward Jung, I was very much involved in humanistic and transpersonal psychology and always going to the conferences and reading the journals and all that stuff. So, you know, Maslow was an important teacher. He went to Esalen in the 60s and really helped to launch that whole stream in the field of psychology, which unfortunately has kind of lost power now, as you know, because the AMA has taken over everything. And I wrote about that in the Age book as part of the context for my retirement because I'm kind of, I'm really heartbroken about what's happened to the field. Can you elaborate a little bit? Who's taken over? The psychiatrists now just dispense medication, right? Oh, I see. They don't, yeah. they don't do therapy. They're told what drugs to give and stuff. And the psychologists are now fighting to be able to give medication. And that's, there are no graduate schools anymore except for Pacifica Graduate Institute in California that really teach deaf psychology. I mean, I don't know of any. I'm, there may be, say, maybe Saybrook Institute Saybrook. is still there. Yeah. 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 Saybrook. Yeah. So we've sort of lost the war in terms of, you know, the field of psychology and is kind of shocking and disturbing and. I refuse to lose the war. My stepson, who's um, 40 now, is a psychologist, and he may as well be in a completely different field from me. I mean, he says shadow and he mocks me. He hears shadow and he, like, mocks me, laughs at me, you know. They have no frame for it. He just studied the brain. So, yeah. So I, I'm glad that you're, you know, it's a worthy battle to fight, but I think that the numbers are against us at this point. Well, this is how much of a legend you are. If you go, and not, I'm not trying to boost your ego here, but if you go type in your name on Google, uh, you know, yeah. like they have, like they'll have people who uh, are associated with you. Well, the kind of people associated with me are not these people. James Hillman, <laughs> Paul Cougar, uh -huh. Carl Young, Rumi. <laughs> Rumi associated uh -huh. with you. So you're there. You're like there with like Carl Jung and Rumi. Well, you know, that's because I wrote a book about Rumi. I wrote a novel called A Moth to the Flame. That's the story of Rumi's life. I think part of this stage of life just developmentally, mm. that stuff doesn't matter anymore, Scott. Mm. In my 40s, if you had said that, I would have kind of gotten pumped up. It doesn't matter to me now. What really matters is that um, my work is reaching people. I'm feeling, I'm living in tremendous gratitude, you know, for the privilege. I have so much privilege as a white person with resources and a most incredible husband and a really beautiful location and and the luxury to be able to write and teach. Mm. And, you know, I'm, so I'm just, I live with, I like to say I live with gratitude in one hand and grief in the other. I have a tremendous mm. amount of grief for what's happening in the world. Every day I feel just tremendous grief. But, 
you know, like right now I want to go look at the prime, the outcome of the primaries. But, you know, I, I've lived a beautiful life. So I'm just very grateful. And you're still living. Yes, I'm still living. <laughs> I have good health. I mean, I'm, there's so yes. many things to be grateful for. Yeah. A couple people I want to recommend to you. I think you really resonate with their work. Uh, Christy Nelson um, was recently on my podcast, talked about gratefulness uh, and uh, existential gratefulness. And she wrote a beautiful book about that. I love the, the, the worldview you have and the outlook you have. Kind of related to this a little bit. Can you talk about the difference between emotional repair and what you talk about, what you refer to as spiritual repair? Some of us have um, found spiritual practices and spiritual teachers and communities and had a lot of gifts and blessings from them. Some of us have been wounded by them. There are a lot of abusive teachers. Mm. And there are a lot of dysfunctional communities. This could be a Catholic priest. This could be, you know, a Swami. This could be a Roshi or a rabbi. Mm. I'm not specifying any kind of a lineage here. But some of us have had um, traumatic experiences in a spiritual context. And that needs healing, just like emotional trauma. And so... And that's part of kind of doing the life review, examining the practices we have or don't have now, rethinking, intuiting the lineage or the organization that we want to affiliate with, and reexamining our beliefs. You know, for many people, they don't believe what they believed 30 years ago, but it actually doesn't occur to them to explore that. It just kind of all happens unconsciously, right? And and the other thing is images. So a lot of us have images of the divine, images of God that we internalized in childhood. That white old man shaking his finger at us, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. Right? Does that fit who you are now and the practices you do now? I mean, if you're a Buddhist meditation practitioner, does that image from your childhood fit? So, you know, spiritual repair is really about getting aligned and congruent from within at all these different levels of your spiritual life. With lots of different levels. Is a lot of that integration? Is it integration? You know, I'm, I'm not such a fan of that word. Um, mm. I worked with one man in his 40s who was a mindfulness practitioner and believed in Buddhist concepts. But as we explored, what we discovered was he had that old man in the sky, angry God, mm. shaking a fist at him every time he had a sexual thought or a sexual fantasy. Oh, wow. Right, that he was going to go to hell because right. he was taught that in Catholic school. Oh, wow. He didn't know that that was still running in him. He just thought he was a Buddhist. Hmm. But that was actually influencing his relational life, his intimate life, because he felt guilty and ashamed about his sexuality. So, you know, I don't really look at it as integration. I look at it more as like uncovering and allowing these different parts to kind of go into the right place, the place where they belong in our psyches, Okay. right? I mean, you mentioned Jim Hillman. He used to talk about plural, the pluralistic psyche, that we have many parts. And so all these parts kind of have a different place at the table. And they don't so much need to be integrated or blended or balanced. They need to have the right proportionality or position in the psyche for us to be really high-functioning. Yes. So are you familiar with Jim Fadiman's work at all? He has a new book out called this, Your Symphony of Selves, which I really like. Yes. Yeah. Jim's a great guy. He's an elder. He, yes. yes, I agree. I agree. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He co-authored that with Jordan Gruber. So I want to give Jordan credit as well. But yeah, it's a really good book. Uh, I recommend people read it. While we're on this theme of spiritual repair and, and growing, how do you see spirituality in later life as a different? What is, how's the flavor of it different than from earlier stages? That's a good question. 
Thank you. You know, in India, the stages of life are brahmacharya, student, and then householder, vanaprastha, and then grandparent, grihasta, and then sannyasin, recluse. You release, you give away your possessions, you leave your home, and you, you're free to wander and to focus on your spiritual practice. That's what that time of life is about. In Christianity, you know, you go to a monastery, right? You become a monk, you go to a monastery in some Christian lineages. So each tradition in, in Judaism, which is not a monastic tradition, there are times of life that are specifically for spiritual practice. So each of these traditions talks about later life, grandparenting and post-grandparenting, as really about this shift from role to soul, or mm. these days what's being called non-duality, mm. awareness of non-duality, that mm. I and you are not separate, that I'm not separate from the rest of the living world, that I'm not separate from anything. N Non-duality is not two, one, oneness. And that this time of life is for finding that oneness and sitting in that oneness in preparation for death. And so the teaching is that if we die in a high level of awareness, we have a different experience. We can have a conscious death, a conscious dying process, right? Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, I think, you know, for me, I wrote about three portals of awareness. There's shadow awareness, the connection to the psyche. There's pure awareness, the connection to, we could call it spirit, the transpersonal center. Mm -hmm. And then there's mortality awareness really living with awareness. And those three qualities of awareness make us an elder. Mm. And so meditation for an elder needs to engage those qualities of awareness, from my point of view. Making notes here. And, you know, all the perennial traditions teach this. this is, I'm not making it up. So this is what you mean by going from role to soul is these three portals of awareness can help you in that transition. Is that, is that right? Is that a fair way of saying that? What I mean by role to soul is we shift our unconscious. We, we, you know, the perennial question, who am I? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Who, who am I? In fact, there's, a practice, there's a practice from Ramana Maharshi in India. that's just sitting with who am I for years and years and years. Okay, so we ask ourselves, who am I when I'm no longer Dr. Connie, when I'm no longer the shadow expert, when I'm no longer Neil's wife, when I'm no longer a writer, who am I? And to take that identification, that sense of, of I-ness and move it into my spiritual nature, my deepest essence. And again, it's not about what we do or don't do. It's not about stopping doing. It's about carrying this quality of awareness. In my tradition, we say, I am that, meaning mm. I am consciousness. Mm. So living, I am that in whatever it is that I'm doing. I'm a mm. soul on a journey, or I am spirit, or I am God. Whatever your language is for this, the language isn't, don't get hung up on my language. Use your own, you know, the language that resonates with you. You could say Buddha nature. I am Buddha nature. So if I'm teaching or I'm with my grandkids or my husband or I'm writing, I am Buddha nature. I am spirit. I'm not the doer. I'm not the one who's doing it all. It's not about my ego's agenda anymore. It was in my 40s when I wrote Romancing the Shadow. <laughs> it's not about that. It's not about that anymore. Yeah. Gone. Poof. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. So interesting. Well, I don't know. I, I hope that uh, at certain points of this interview today, I 
triggered some of your earlier ego um, because you deserve it. <laughs> no, I know. I appreciate all your humility, but I hope today, you know, I activated a little, at least some of that, that uh, 40s um, energy, uh, which is, it has, it has a time and place in our lives. Absolutely. I feel appreciated. Let's put it that way, Scott. Let's put it that way. I feel appreciated. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today and, and for uh, the, the cr incredible work you've done and uh, that you still will continue to do. And thank you for your efforts to um, maintain the soul of psychology. Oh, I really, love that. really, really important. Can I put that in a blurb of a book someday? Skybreak Hoffman's trying to, to keep the soul of psychology. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.